You're listening to I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Care of You. I hope you enjoy the show. Our mission to talk about Operation Mindcrime, the third studio album by Queensryche, will save the world. It was released on May 3rd, 1988 on EMI Records and was produced by Peter Collins. It's a concept album that follows Nikki, a drug addict who becomes involved with a revolutionary group as an assassin. The album was certified platinum in 1991. The needle may lie, but my guest today does not. Please welcome back to the show, Metal Maven, Joe Owens. Joe, how are you doing today? Doing well, thanks. It's Friday. Having uh, having a good time over there in, in Florida? Are you enjoying a, a tasty beverage today? Actually, right now, I have a big hot cup of coffee, but it is tasty. That's what's important. So today, we're going to be talking about what I think is an all-time metal classic with Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime. Spent a little bit of time, about a year or two, as my favorite album. But Joe, tell me, how did this album enter your life? My high school girlfriend was a huge Queensryche fan, like fan club level, you know, she writes the band a little that was kind of how I was introduced to the band. I heard, you know, some of the earlier uh, stuff off of The Warning and Rage, and I liked it. But it really, they kind of came in uh, to the fore when this album came out. And, of course, she was really into it. We actually saw this concert. They opened for Metallica on their Justice for All tour, and we got backstage passes. So I met the band on this tour. That was just pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. Yeah, but kind of by proxy from my girlfriend, who was a fanatic, and of course I loved it, so when this album came out, it blew me away, and I jumped on board too. I think at this point, I had only heard Gonna Get Close to You, and I had seen that on Headbangers Ball. I remember thinking it was okay, but it was just too slow, because Headbangers Ball came on at midnight, so by the time I saw it, it was like 1 o'clock in the morning, and it was getting a little tired, and I needed yeah, I needed songs. Yeah, too. <laughs> Yeah. And I like that song a lot now, but at the time I thought, eh, you know, whatever. And so there was this uh, pool hall that I used to hang out at with uh, some friends of mine. And uh, this other person we knew named Jessica had, I guess, recently bought the cassette. And so she was talking about it. She was, you know, just kind of raving about Queensryche. And I was like, eh, you know, they're okay. And she's like, no, they're not okay. Into my car now. <laughs> so we went out, the tape was in her cassette deck. So she put on spreading the disease. And I was like, okay, this is awesome. And so I went out and bought it a, a day or two later and listened to it obsessively for the next year. And then I ended up going back. And so then I got Rage for Order and The Warning and the, the self-titled EP and, and listened to those things just on a constant loop. But this was the one. I probably spent three months just listening to side one, trying to make sure I understood the story. It's been amazing going back and listening to this because I remember everything about this record from the sound effects, the actors' voices and stuff. Like, yeah. I've been able to just speak along with this the whole time. Yeah, so Queensryche spent a little bit of time as my favorite band, and this spent a little bit of time as my favorite record, and I'm really looking forward to talking about this. And so let's go ahead and get started with our track-by-track -track analysis. Side one, song one, two, and three, we're going to take all at one time. So this one opens up with I Remember Now, goes into Anarchy X, which is an instrumental, and then comes into the first proper track. So that's what we're going to do now. I can't remember yesterday. I just remember doing what they told me. Told me. I remember now sets up the story. We're hearing from who we will soon learn is Nikki, and he is in a, a mental institution, and he is remembering what happened. So we know that the events of this album have already happened, and we're being remembered by our protagonist, Nikki. That segues into Anarchy X, which is an instrumental. It's only about a minute and a half long. And then that goes into the first proper song, Revolution Calling. It 
just this whole intro opening is so good. The Anarchy X is great. I, and it, it flows really well into Revolution Calling. I'm not exactly sure why they decided to make that a, a separate track and not just a, a bit of an intro. But basically, once we get past that opening thing with the with Jeff Tate as playing, uh, so the singer playing Nikki. Uh, so the opening line, as far as singing goes, is for a price I'd do about anything except pull the trigger. For that, I'd need a pretty good cause. That's our introduction to Nikki, who is basically just kind of a low-level thug. This song really kind of sets up the universe that we're in. And so this album, as we said, came out in 1988. So it was written, I think, throughout late 1987, 1988. And it's amazing how many of the things, the issues that are touching this album are still oh, relevant man. today. Yeah. It's been insane listening to this because it's at times it feels like, you know, oh, is this album prescient? And it's like, no, it's just things haven't gotten any fucking better. <laughs> you know? We learn about what's going on and, and and basically the initial seduction of what they're what they refer to as the order, which is this revolutionary thing. And at this point, Nikki is just sort of, you know, he didn't go to school and he's uh, we find out later he's basically a junkie and and a few other things. But now musically, it's just so good. I mean, just musically. I mean, if you're into heavy metal, this is a, such a great record because Queensryche, I think early Queensryche owed a lot of their sound to early Iron Maiden. And so with that kind of twin guitar attack, and but by this time, by this is their third full length, they had really found their own sound with that. And there's a really consistent guitar tone throughout this record. It's really good. And Scott Rockenfeld has, I think, is a really distinctive drummer. He plays around with syncopation without going full on into it all the time. And a lot of times he's just doing things on the drums where it almost feels like, can only one person be doing that? <laughs> you know, so he's just got a real kind of kinetic, frantic style. And for the most part, the bass is just this like really lumbering, low end bass. And then Jeff Tate has these real operatic vocals. And, and this whole thing combines just some really great musicianship with some really clever storytelling. That first opening, let's say, suite of these three songs just immediately had me hooked. I wanted to know more about the story. I wanted to know what was going on. What do you think about these? Well, so you're, you're dead on listening to this again. I have listened to periodically over the years, so it hadn't been that long. But definitely as soon as the, the first footsteps you hear walking down the hall in the hospital and the, the intercom, I can speak every every line of the whole thing. And did and you ever just, notice the, the uh, like the, the Dr. Davis telephone, please? Dr. Yeah, Davis. Yeah. I have heard that yeah. in like well, 100, 100 different places. I would see that on sitcoms. Yeah, that's like a, a piece of like stock, uh, not stock, stock sound effect or something. You hear, you, one thing that I've always... Like you hear the the main theme, if you will, of the whole mind crime uh, epic. You hear that being whistled, that <laughs> you know, and it's like oh. And as soon as I heard that, it was like, yeah, you know what you're hearing. And then that, you know, once it jumps into that anarchy X, that very martial drum, man, I love. That. I, I I have a picture at the video. I think um, you know they put together a little video montage of five or six of the songs and i remember and i looked for it and i couldn't find actually what i was looking for so i thought oh, this is in my imagination i remember there being a video of a bunch of clips of like clashes riots different you know armies marching and it just really matched this whole drum beat that's going on and then when it leads into revolution calling the actual song where we get the introduction to nikki and kind of his worldview at the time I think the chorus of Revolution Calling is just, I, you know, as I was listening to it, I, we could name any candidate, but wouldn't that just like be one of the ultimate like campaign songs? <laughs> you know, <laughs> obviously it's kind of, you know, just the chorus part, but still that Revolution Calling, it does, man. It makes you want to shake your fist and <laughs> start, go start a revolution. So I, I think musically, like you said, they, they just really captured what they're trying to tell you in the story. And that's a hard thing to do. If you think, if you think of concept albums, this, The Wall, uh, you know, a handful of others, how they were, you know, how music, how good is it musically? You know, we can not to rabbit trail off into other things, but still, there's just a couple that I think really capture the mood and the tone with what they try to do. Bond crime definitely top of that. Oh, certainly. Yeah. So it, it all, it all really comes together. This was a, a, I think a band just really operating at the top of their game. They put everything together and it just, it works really well. And this, 
introduction to it. It's key. I mean, you, you have to be, if you're on board, you're on board. That's what you learn from those first three songs. So let's go ahead and move on to track four, the title track, Operation Mindcrime. What do you think about this one, Joe? So here we shift gears. Here we actually get the, uh, you know, the story part of it. We shift to Doctor X's viewpoint. The thing that stands out of musically of this song is the bass. I think a little while ago you kind of described the bass as lumbering, but the, the, on this song particularly, man, it's like Godzilla's footsteps. I, I think the, the way he plays bass behind this whole song. To me, is just outstanding. And, you know, he's not somebody you'd recognize as a great bass player or whatever. Eddie Jackson and Queen Drive, his, his instrument shines on this song. Obviously, yeah, we get into the story. It, it kind of almost gives you chills. It has kind of a, almost kind of a slow, jazzy, noirish chorus. And, you know, Dr. X is explaining what he's doing. Yeah, so we see that uh, he has joined the Order as a hitman, and he's taking his orders from Dr. X. And he's more or less being controlled by heroin. So we know that he is a heroin addict and that's what they're using. Along with your standard mind manipulation, this is just the way that they're keeping him controlled. I would like to say like with the thought of the lumbering bass, I meant that really in a good way because he's bringing just a ton of low end, oh, especially yeah, yeah, at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. But there are times in, in this track and in the next track especially where he does some really fun stuff with the bass. Yeah. So it's not just him you know, hitting a low E over and over again. So I just think because Scott Rockenfeld has such a kinetic style and because they have the two guitars like almost like two lead guitars as opposed to a rhythm and a lead they kind of have that iron maiden thin lizzie twin guitar attack and i think a lot of what eddie jackson was doing was keeping everything together so i think that's what his bass was doing but there are times where he does really kind of flash a lot of the skills that he does have and i think and this is one of the ones that you uh, that you definitely see it so this is another just a great song and really gets us into the meat of the story yeah well, one thing i want to say real quick i love it you kind of touched on a little bit i love the lyric uh he had a skin job for a hairdo yeah he looked pretty cool and then he says, had a habit doing main lines. But I just, I always thought that that was just one of the, just a great lyric. <laughs> you know, the imagery and the way he kind of rolls it off. And Well, it's after that line. So it's like, a, uh, had a habit doing main line, watch the dragon burn. And the bass lick that he does there is awesome. Mm-hmm. Like, Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my uh, my buddy Pete in high school played bass, and he loved that part. He would always kind of mime that part of it. He just thought that was the greatest. Which brings us on to track five, Speak. And this song is a fucking jam. It's heavy. This is maybe the heaviest song on the record, and it hits hard lyrically. It's essentially propaganda. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And and that's what I love about it because while I think if you look at you know they're they're kind of distancing some uh, they're on the other side of fascism supposedly they're taking the way out of but you know political assassination. So I don't agree with that. But I feel like with the order, there's probably a lot that I would agree with because <laughs> we see that they're they're against you know religion and they're against the control the rich the rich controlling the media and the government and I think a lot of their ideals are good but then of course it just goes that they become more or less what they hate I think this one's being told from Nikki's perspective you know, there's just some fantastic lines on here but I love the uh, you know the the system. Uh, it says we're equal under law. The reality is the weak and poor will fall. And it's let, let's tip the power balance and tear down the crown. Educate the masses. We'll burn the White House down. And the way it sings and the way his voice, the way he just approaches the singing can give me chills on this song. It's so good, heavy and in your face. And it's a propaganda song. And that's what, and I didn't even 
really realize that till a lot later that that's was kind of the point of this. It's almost like this is the slogan and that's why it's because it opens up with, Hey, Hey, listen to me. And then the yeah, guitars yeah. kick in and it's just, it's great. What do you think about this one? Yeah, definitely the lyrics, man, this song and talking about its relevancy and it's always held relevancy. You could, you could listen to this song at any point since it was written and it's, it's right on the money, the corruption, the greed, and definitely Tate's voice is, peak here i in fact I, I i take that literally i think even though the follow-up empire was more commercial i think tate peaked on this album uh, his voice is just perfect <laughs> and it's a, also a credit to the producers i've always thought of this as being a headphone album and this song, particular song is great with the headphones there's some others too and stuff about that but the production on this album is, is just perfect and all the sound effects like said, the voices the intros the things you know that kind of happen between the songs are just as important to the songs to keep the story going. I think production-wise, you definitely pick up on all that. Uh, this is a, a really clean-sounding record, and a lot of times metal records didn't always get that good production. They didn't have the, the the money being put towards that. And I think this one sounds fantastic. Like one of the one of the problems that with the warning is the warning sounds kind of muddy. I think it's a good record. And it sounds a lot better on vinyl. I know I hate when, usually when people say that they're just being a little bit pretentious, but I don't think that at least initially, that initial transfer to tape and to CD didn't really sound very good. It sounds a lot better on vinyl, but it still has kind of muddy-ish production. And we see better production on the follow-up with that with Rage for Order. But this is one, this is just a good, clean sounding record along with all the, the other stuff that's going on to, to keep the, you know, that muscle and tissue of the album go or the story going yeah you know that is big too when you talk about the the twin guitar attacks the iron maiden the judas priest i think they definitely had that special sound that not a lot of bands could capture you like you said there's a lead guitarist a rhythm guitarist they play their part in a band but i think these guys chris DeGarmo especially you know and that sounds changed when when he left but still the way both of the guitarists would could attack these songs, each play solos, each play their own piece. Yeah, so the the musicianship on this is, is top-notch, and, and I think just because they have kind of a silly name and they got lumped in with a lot of other things, I don't know if they always got the credit that they deserved from other things. Just It's just so good musically, and it's literate, and, and it's just, yeah, anyway. On to uh, track six, Spreading the Disease. What do you think about this one, Joe? This is a good one. I, I think this is kind of where we get into uh, the more a little subdued, where we kind of get into what's really going on. Again, it carries a lot of the things. The drums, uh, like I mentioned, the highlight of uh, Operation Minecraft being the bass. I think the drums on this song is incredible. Man, he just taps it out and love it. Oh yeah, the the drums to open the song are just so great. So just they have just that perfect amount of echo and tightness to them, and it's just that not quite the Marshall beat we saw earlier, but I think just he's got a really great drum sound. Like I said, everything sounds so good on this record. And this is where we meet Sister Mary. So she joins the story here. So she's a former prostitute turned nun turned formant by the order or something. So she is the go-between for Nikki and the order. So she brings him heroin essentially and keeps him occupied. Uh, and then there's the whole, yeah, that middle part. I was mesmerized by that when this first came out uh, that, you know, the religion and sex or power plays manipulate the people for the money they pay selling skin, selling God, the numbers look the same on their credit cards. They almost wrapped you know, in, in his own Jeff Tate sort of way. <laughs> yeah, and it's just how it's still so relevant. <laughs> yeah. That whole thing, that whole middle part that ends with, you know, as the 1% rules America and just the way he sings it. And yeah, this so this was my introduction to the album, like I said. And these first four proper songs, so Revolution Calling, Operation Mind Crime, Speak, and Spreading the Disease are just it's just so good. It's just untouchable. And they're all, I think, all really heavy while still giving the songs room to breathe. And 
you know, so they, I think at this point, you know, some people would put them in with, let's say prog metal, but I think these guys are just fairly standard heavy metal. So like you said, Priest and Iron Maiden, and they had a nice edge to them. They didn't go full on thrash, but they didn't get too poppy until a little bit later. And even that was kind of a brief thing, which I think they needed just a break <laughs> from what they were, you know, cause they did a couple of really serious records and, but yeah, so that spreading the disease is, uh, this is one of my all time favorites by them. So between speak and spreading the disease, depending on the day, I'll tell you that's my favorite song on the album. And then on to track seven, the mission. This is where it really slows down. So this one's a, is a lot slower, you know, musically, and uh, you know, this would be the ballad on any other record. <laughs> I yeah. think that you know, it's like yeah. maybe not quite where you would place it, but just the musicality of it. You know, Nikki is hiding and he's waiting for Mary to bring him dope and or love. So I think he's convinced that he is in love with Mary, and whether that's just because she's the one that brings him drugs and takes care of him, or whether it's a, a legitimate connection, I think is really left to interpretation. Um, I think we're probably really supposed to believe it's just because of the drugs. But this is one that it kind of walks through its paces. So it's it's a little bit slower while still having some real crunch to it in certain parts. And we see this relationship a, a little bit clearer between Nikki and Sister Mary, who we just met. It's really well placed and it's leading us up to what is, you know, the, the big, big track on this, at least side one. What do you think about the mission? Like you said, it's, it's kind of the ballad of it, but I think Tate's voice shines on this song. His voice is perfect. Kind of the way he describes the, the scene, there's the, the haunting guitar that plays behind it it's kind of soft melody but it has a little sinister edge to it like the whole album does it kind of building up it builds up to what's happening you know we learned uh you know what he's doing he's he's out there he's, he's an assassin he's killing people so you know i love the opening line bless me father for i have sinned um and we hear the gunshot the glass break and, and in the background you hear the uh the televangelist the tv playing I would love that part. And that's another thing that I can recite. He puts your heart in your pocketbook and take his hand. <laughs> <laughs> and he shoots the TV. Yeah, that's yeah. Cool. It is a little bit of a filler composition, but it's movement of the song, of the story. You know, the song fits it. Yeah, it certainly does. It's uh, it's it, it doesn't feel like just a placeholder, though. I mean, I think you do need to slow it down because those four previous four songs just they rock super hard and i think you need just a little bit of a break but that brings us on to track eight a 10 minute 41 second behemoth to inside one sweet sister mary What do you think about this? This is my favorite track on the album. I think it's, uh, well, it's cinematic. It, you know, this, this, this song where we really get to the action of what's going on, the confrontation with the priest, Father William, is, is implied, has a less than savory relationship with Mary. So we get a little bit of a revenge story. We're with Nikki with this. We become the assassin. We're walking into that church the thunder, the rain, the Dr. X pulling up in the limousine, and we hear, kill her. It's all coming together. It's like a movie, just listening to it. And you, I think you mentioned on a previous song, Getting Chills. This is definitely a song that just you get chills all the way through it. Like I said, it's my favorite track. Obviously, there's some hits on it. We'll talk about that. But so much movement, so much emotion going on. And I think the scene that they set up, this big 
climax. It's not the, the ultimate climax, but at least for this side of the album, kind of leaves you breathless when it's over. Yeah. And I complain all the time on this show about really long songs. They're like, does this song need to be 10 minutes and 41 seconds? I will not complain about this one. I think this, I don't remember ever being bothered by the length of this song. It opens up with, you know, Dr. X ordering Nikki to kill Mary. You know, he says because she knows too much, but is it that? Is 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 he testing Nikki to, to see his loyalty or is he does he want to get rid of Mary just because he feels that there's something going on with their relationship? Who knows exactly? But yeah, you see you have like the rain sound effects and you have like these operatic backup singers which is something out of like the omen it sounds you know it sounds oh. like in so many ways could be cheesy but they pull it off and at no point do you ever kind of roll your eyes or like uh, you know it's just it all works and it, especially in the context of this record uh, his vocal performance is really varied cuz he's always been known as you know he he can hit those high notes but you know here he's he's doing a lot of different things well, you, and we also have another we have another vocalist there's the Pamela, whatever I heard her name. There's, there's actually another singer on this, so she's singing her Mary's part. Okay, yes, I don't think she sings. I think she just yeah. she's. It's what another, are you doing out in the rain? Uh, like the part. Thank you. I just want to believe that. Yeah, they they kind of do a little duet towards the end of it, and that's that's okay. a bump. They brought her on tour. Okay, because I I know that there's like an actress who does. You know, what are you doing out in the rain? And there's a, you know she so she you know come in so she speaks, but I don't remember her singing. But that's possible. I just hadn't noticed. So I said, yeah, check it out. Yeah, it's at least in concert. I'm pretty sure that on the the recording too, it's her singing. Okay, but yeah, it's it's really effective. It's really evocative, and I like because he goes kind of back and forth with the whole thing. Where I think you know he calls her a whore for the underground and so he goes through that where he kind of hates her trying to think kind of psych himself up to do it but then he loves her and so they just you know they're gonna they're gonna run away and there's some acting going on there even just though he's singing it works and it's it's effective and it's a great way to end side one because i originally had this on cassette did you have this on cassette yeah Remember, like side one is much longer than side two. You know, it was always really annoying when you'd flip the tape over, it'd take you forever to, you know, to get all the way to where you needed to be. (laughs) So that brings us to the end of side one of Operation Mind Crime by Queen Drake here on I Fucking Love This Record with my special guest, Joe Owens. Joe, what are you working on these days? What's going on? You got anything you want to promote? Anything you want to talk about? Uh, Not really. Doing a little bit of writing, doing a lot of reading, doing a lot of Listening to music, trying to stay sane, uh, then on lockdown. Luckily, I'm, I'm a bit of a loner and a stoner, and I can make it work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did you even notice that you were on lockdown, Joe? <laughs> Not really, no. So uh, what's something interesting that you've listened to lately? Can you make a recommendation here in the middle of our Queensryche podcast? I have been really getting into a stoner doom metal band called Uncle Acid and the Deadbeats, my latest thing. That sounds, that sounds vaguely familiar. I may have to check that out. That's I'm, well, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the stoner metal. Well, one of the reviews I read said they sounded like if original Black Sabbath, the original Alice Cooper band, and the original Stooges were locked in a jail cell jamming together. And I think it's pretty accurate. That sounds fucking awesome. I will definitely be checking that out. So I like all three of those. So Okay, so let's flip this bad boy over. Side two, track nine, The Needle Lies. So this one opens up with uh, some acting once again. So it's Nikki basically saying he can't do it. He doesn't want to do it anymore. He's going to leave. Dr. X basically is like, you know, you can't walk away now. And his big evil laugh. And then the music comes in. So just with that guitar just kind of slides right in. And this song rocks. This is a great way to kick off side two. This is all about him struggling with his addiction. He he wants to leave because of what's going on with Mary, but he can't because he's a junkie. And there's a line. It's like, so every 
every time I'm weak, words scream from my arms, which is such a great line. And there's a ton of stuff here just, you know, with him, the struggles that he's going through. But this just has like huge riffs on it. And again, just like real frantic drumming. I, you know, I like this song a whole lot. What about you? Yeah, definitely. This I think this may be one of their, if not the heaviest song in the Queen Drive catalog. It's just it's a quick grinding uh, pedal to the metal, rock itself drums, pound it away. It's we we get definitely kind of the, the Doctor X vibe from this. Like you said, I, I think it, it's a fast song. I hesitate. I, I, I in a way, I'm going to say it's probably my least favorite song on the album, but that's. You know, it's still pretty good. Um, <laughs> that, that, that almost, I guess, calling it the least makes it sound negative, and it, there's definitely nothing negative. I, I think it just kind of moves fast. I, definitely as a starter for side two, you know, after what we felt, you know, with Sweet Sister Mary breaks right into that perfect way to start the side. Yeah, again, a little bit of filler. It's great filler. I'll take it. So track 10, this is a pretty short one, but something important happens here. So I think we're going to talk about it by itself. Uh, Electric Requiem. What do you think about this? I think, again, it fills its purpose. We've got kind of the shocking moment when Nikki comes in and, and finds Mary's gone. She's dead. But now what's he going to do? His dreams come crashing down everything that he's felt and, and done up until now. He's confronted with. It's an instrumental, so it, it literally is filler. But, yeah, it's, it's filler with a purpose. Yeah, And on a concept album like this, you just have to expect that. I had originally thought about like we did with uh, tracks one, two, and three, kind of putting this together, but it doesn't quite fit with either of the songs before after. And if it wasn't for the fact that this is where he finds Mary. Uh, so Mary's dead. So he had been ordered to kill her. He does not kill her. She winds up dead anyway. And what we don't know, the big mystery of this record is who killed Mary. It's not very clear. And that's something we can talk about a little bit later, but we're going to go ahead and move on to track 11, Breaking the Silence. This is probably the most commercial sounding song. I don't know if they had a hit with this or not. I'm assuming they, I don't even know if they released it. Did they release this? Yeah, yeah. This was was one of the hits. The first one, I Uh think. Okay. Because I know this this record, I think, underperformed. I mean, even though it ended up selling a million copies, you know, but it took three years for this to go platinum and it didn't have any huge radio singles. I think with, I don't believe in love, which we'll get to, I think did okay. But I, I have three. It had three hits, if you want to call it that. I know they were released. I just I don't know, know how. It had, it had three singles. I don't believe in love. It had. Dragon Silence, I Don't Believe in Love, and Eyes of a Stranger. And I don't think any of them did particularly. I don't, I don't know if they charted or not. I'd have to look that Eyes up. I forgot Stranger, Eyes of a Stranger was probably the most commercial successful. I believe so. But I think this is the... So Breaking the Silence, I think, is the most commercial sounding. This sounds like the most... Again, from a, a metal perspective, anyway. Uh, so this has, I think, a much more common structure. I think we don't really get a lot of the the back and forth guitars on it. We don't have like real crazy drumming on it. This is the most, if you were to think of a, of a heavy metal song that could be played on the radio in 1988, this is a song that you would think of. I don't mean that in a bad way. Uh, and so this is essentially Nikki's lament for Mary. So that's what's going on here. And I think that there's it, there's no heavy lifting with the plot, which I think is one of the reasons why this could have been put on the radio, because it's not like you you wouldn't quite know what to make of it. You know, and obviously you don't always have, you know, songs don't always make sense anyway. But, uh, you know, so I like this one, but this one, this is probably my least favorite because it just feels the most, we want to have a hit here somewhere. 
And that's the way this comes across to me. What do you think about this one? Yeah, definitely. I was going to say, of the three hits, I, this was my least favorite. It's still a good song. I think, again, some of the instrumental stuff, Eddie Jackson's got this, got a good bass along groove to it. You know, nothing really going on with the lyrics. Yeah, it, it definitely, like you said, it, now we're really getting into their writing a song for the radio. But, you know, if that's what's going on, it works for what it's doing. I don't think it did too bad because I do kind of remember. I remember seeing that video on MTV at the time and I heard it on the radio. So, uh, but uh, the other, the other songs definitely, I think were, were better quality musically and I think did better commercially. So I definitely have the three hit songs. This was the weakest. Yeah, I, like I said, I, and like you said, it's not a, it's not a bad song. It's a good song, but I think this is just feels a little, I don't know, boilerplate for lack of a better word. It was actually I remember my son we used to play Guitar Hero, and I, I could I was never proficient enough to work the guitar. I let him do that, but I would sing, and this was kind of a fun song to sing. The Tate's voice is yeah perfect on this, so and he kind of keeps the low registers. You know, not many figures you can think about can sing that high operatic vocals and then also get those deeper, almost David Bowie level registers that sound just smooth as honey. Credit to him for sure. Yeah. One of the things I, I always appreciated about Tate's voice is that while he could hit those highs, he could also bring it down to the lows, but it never felt like I'm not a big fan of King Diamond because he would always do that whole, I'm way up here and I'm right down here. And it just, you know, without any of that middle, <laughs> without any of that dream i'm talking there <laughs> but i always thought that tate had that smooth register like he could really hit those highs he could bring it down a little bit low but he also had that great mid-range that he wasn't afraid to use and you could see that on songs like this where he could just go out and sing a fairly standard song oh yeah uh, yeah when you hear him talk he's got a very baritone he's got a very rich deep voice blast <laughs> you know what with golden pipes man that guy is <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And according to Wikipedia, Breaking the Silence was not released as a single. So that may have just been an album track that people played. So uh, I don't know. But now one that definitely was released as a single, track 12, I Don't Believe in Love. What are your thoughts here, Joe? Oh, I love this song. This is probably my favorite of the hits. It's a great song. You know, we've all <laughs> we've all been there. You know, this song where the rest of it tells Nikki's story. This song, you know, you take this to be part of your own story. This is, you know, we all been burned and, you know, it's got a great, I don't believe in love. I'm not, you know, I'm over it. This is, was all just fake anyway. So as a, as a song that's radio friendly, whatever, it works on both levels where Breaking the Silence really didn't. You know what I mean? Again, it's very commercial. I mean, it, it, it's, it's got good good hooks, the guitar solos in it. I, I, they, they work, you know, on both levels. They're accurately proficient, but also commercially viable for a good single. And I think this song did pretty well, didn't it? This is the only one I remember hearing anywhere outside of my own bedroom and my own cassette tape. So I think, because um, this one, I think was the last one that they released, because I think Eyes of a Stranger was the first, and I think they released Revolution Calling, is what my understanding is here. So yeah, so I Don't Believe in Love was uh, the last one, and it just missed the top 40. So it peaked at 41. Really? Yeah, and that's for mainstream rock. So I don't know if uh, if they had anything else, but if it charted on a different chart, but on the on the regular hits, it made it to to forty one. Which I think, considering that this was a was a pretty heavy band that didn't have really any name recognition at this point, and a name like Queensrÿche, I think that's 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 fairly decent. So I, I, you know, this is one I remember even a couple years later hearing on the radio. So when I first moved to Tampa on ninety eight rock, they used to play it at the time before Empire. This is the song that they were most known for. And I think it's a good song. And again, this doesn't really give a whole lot towards the narrative, towards the plot, more just Nikki trying to convince himself that it wasn't real, 
and that he didn't love her, not because it was a bad breakup, but because she's dead. <laughs> that's what I've, I've always gotten from it. And that's, uh, again, didn't go too plot heavy just so it could be put on the radio. Because like you said, anybody, a, a lot of people could sympathize with at least that sentiment of, of not believing in love because maybe I thought it when it was happening, but now that it's over, it's I don't, I don't believe it. It's a good one. But uh, we're going to move on to track 13, which is a, another instrumental called Waiting for 22. was going to lump all this together at the end, but you had some stuff that you wanted to say about it. So what are your thoughts on Waiting for 22? I think it's a beautiful guitar solo. In fact, it's one of my all-time favorite guitar solos. I love it. I think it's got such a haunting refrain. I love the way, uh, you know, I don't know. I think this was DeGarmo. I think this is the the, the perfect capitalization of, of his guitar tone. I love this guitar solo. Yeah, the band really, I think, misses his guitar sound, that's for sure. And like I had said at the beginning, I think there's a, a pretty consistent guitar tone throughout this whole record. It doesn't vary a lot, but I think there's a, a cohesion that really works because this is a concept record. You don't need that for a concept record, but I think it works well because of that. Which then brings us into another real short track called My Empty Room. There's no sleep today and pretend when all my dreams are crimes I can't stand facing them This is basically just before Nikki has been caught. He doesn't know what he's going to do without Mary and all the things. Because it was like, you know, so who's going to, who's going to fix my meals? Who's going to clean my room? Who's going to be my friend is how that one ends. And it's haunting and it really does work. So waiting for 22. And I think these last four even. So when you go from, I don't believe in love into waiting for 22, because I think there's a good connection there into my empty room and then into the final track. It really works as a suite almost. So what do you think about my empty room? Kind of the uh, little intro, really, to Eyes of the Stranger, and you know, wedged in there. Like I said, yeah, definitely. This I think that whole section's a sweet, kind of a little bit of a throwaway, but the intro to Eyes of the Stranger. The drums, like the big booming drums in this one, is is really great. So that leaves us with the final track, Eyes of a Stranger. This is another, this isn't quite as long as Sweet Sister Mary, but this is, you know, just over six minutes long. Ties everything all together. This has just a great guitar sound. This one was also released. And I'm sure, I wonder, because there there is some some plot going on here. So this wraps everything up. And I'm sure there had to have been a single edit for it because it ends with a lot of sound effects and a lot of different things from, uh, you hear different parts of other songs here. It's almost like the end of a uh, show tunes, right? Where you get everything, like a medley. That's the word I'm looking for. This is a bit of a medley. So you can hear parts of speak and, and spread the disease. And then, of course, it ends exactly where the album begins with the phrase, I remember now. It's still, I mean, a great, great song. This is a great way to end it. I really like this song. It's a terrific way to, to end. What do you think about it? Yeah, and I think this was probably their most successful of the hits. I still, I hear it all the time on Aussie Stoneyard satellite radio, so it still gets big airplay. Again, you get Kate's voices just spot on. It's commercial. It has a little more kind of a radio-friendly sound, but... I think it's a good song. It wraps things up. It's a great way to, you know, kind of end the album with all the different themes. Like you said, you have the montage at the beginning that draws from all the different various 
songs that we've heard. And I, I think it's kind of cool that they were able to kind of take the end piece and make that their single. You know, we saw them go from this peak, you know, we talked about that a little earlier, to then moving on to Empire, where they actually did get real commercial success with like Silent Lucidity and what was the other big hit off that one, Death City Woman. One thing, though, it's kind of funny. If you listen to I Don't Believe in Love and Jet City Woman, there's definitely a running vibe. I think those two songs are pretty similar. I meant to say that back where you talked about that, but I think there's a similarity where they, where they kind of took what they did with I Don't Believe in Love, rewrote it a little bit and made Jet City Woman, and that became, that was a, that was a big hit. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty big. I think I think Silent Lucidity is probably their biggest hit. That's what brought oh, them to the mainstream. What I'm seeing here is that this uh, this reached uh, number 35. So yes, it did chart better than I don't believe in love. All right, so that's the end. So that brings us to our final thoughts, Joe. What do you think? What are your final thoughts about this record? I think it's a masterpiece. It's definitely in my top. I'd say, I'd say top 25 albums of all time for sure. Maybe higher than that if I really thought about it. It's interesting. Not long ago, I saw a top 10 list, greatest concept albums, and this wasn't on it. And I was kind of shocked, especially some of the other choices. I don't remember with particular ones, but I thought, wow, surprising because I think this is up there. Like with Pink Floyd, The Wall, and yeah, I, I think it's a masterpiece. Certainly for their career. I don't know if you'd maybe call it a swan song. Musically, I've, I've continued to be a, fan, a Queen Drive fan. In fact, you know, they've got a new singer now, and I did a, did a couple rock cruises. Met the guys, had beers with them. Kind of a little funny story. I was, I, I got, I was on an elevator on the cruise ship one night by myself, not a single other song on it. I'm wearing a Queen Drive t shirt. It was the Rage for Order album cover. And the elevator doors slide open, and the whole fucking band gets on the elevator with me. And of course, they see me in the t-shirt, and they're, you know, clap me on the back and shaking my head. Thanks for being a fan. Super cool, super humble guys, Ben. Uh, you know, like I said, they got a new singer now. He sounds phenomenal. They do a lot of the old stuff. They do stuff that, you know, from Rage, from the EP, uh, you know, stuff that, you know, quite the, probably these guys, they, Original Queens are didn't even do live, so they've recorded a few studio albums with Todd, and I think he sounds awesome. They're they're all great albums. Yeah, not mind crime level, but you know, I, I think I think it's awesome that they've gone on, continued as a band. The only original members playing with them now is Michael Wilton and uh, Eddie Jackson, the bass player. Eh, but it's still Queens are that they're still making good music. So hey, I'll, I'll cheer them on. Like I said at the beginning, this is an album that spent probably maybe two years as my favorite record. I was obsessive about this one. It's been funny because some of these albums that I've revisited that I still love, I don't quite remember them the way I remember this one. And this has been so visceral for me uh, listening to this again. And I still listen to it every once in a while, I'll pull it out. And I have the first four records on vinyl and on a Friday or Saturday night when I'm having a couple of beers, it's not unusual to just chuck one of those records on. This, I think, still holds up. I think this still sounds great, even though I'm, I, I don't know how much of that is nostalgia or and how much of that is just that when I heard it at the time, because I would have been 16, I think, when I heard this, 16, maybe 17 when I heard this. And it just burrowed deep, deep into my brain, this one. It's been really great revisiting it. And this is a band that I feel, this was one of the first life-changing records that I had because I started listening to Queensryche and I stopped listening to a lot of other bands. I guess I just, something about the fact that they felt smart as opposed to, it wasn't just all about booze and pussy. So it was a nice change of pace of, they could write about serious things and and also this that storytelling aspect to it. And I think it's it's a pretty effective story and it's still a bit of the mystery, you know, who killed Mary. And I've never listened to Operation Mindcrime Part 2, where Dr. X was being sung by uh, Ronnie James Dio. And part of me just wants to leave this where it is. So I haven't listened to that. I haven't listened to a lot of what they've done. So I thought Empire was okay. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of it, but I understood what Empire was trying to do because this album was pretty serious. And I'm sure to write a concept album has to be incredibly difficult just because you're you're trying to tell a complete story while also trying to write things that are good musically. I can only imagine how really difficult it was to tie this all together. It's my understanding that this album was birthed, that they were at a dance club in, I think, London. 
and there was a woman dressed as a nun dancing with like a teddy bear or something. And that is what got the, so I think Sweet Sister Mary was actually the first song written for this album. If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, cause this is going on 28 year old memories or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is at this point, nearly 30 year old memories. So it was just really effective. And I think if you look at the uh, Rage for Order, Rage for Order, well, not a concept album, I think was more of a thematic album. And I think they were really trying to mine some serious ground there as well. And so I think they needed a break from that. And so I understood what Empire was about and they just wanted to, they just wanted to be a rock band, you know? And not such a serious concept album because a lot of times you, I, I think you've probably because you listen to a lot of metal, so I know that sometimes a, a, a metal band will put out a concept record, and the next thing you know, that's all they're putting out are concept records. You mentioned King Diamond; that's all he does. That's every album he's put out since he left Merciful Fate has been a literally a concept album. <laughs> I had written a story about this, or not a story, but because uh, I used to have a, a website called Legion Studios and did a thing on um, life changing records or. I can't remember what the topic was, but I wrote about this record and how, because of this, I started listening to a lot of different things, but still within metal. So it was like, I, this is what eventually got me listening to thrash because I thought at the time that Metallica and Testament and a few of those other bands were singing about stuff that wasn't just nothing but a good time. But that's also what led me out of metal altogether. I just started listening to, to different things. I didn't really follow Queensryche much beyond this album and the one after that. So I've heard here in the Now Frontier and another um, one, but the one with the big wooden... Promised Land. I think Promised Land was better than Empire, personally. I was just on to different things at that point. So I, it's one of those I need to kind of revisit. And I know they put out a covers record just recently, or just recently, since I've been to Poland, which has been 15 years. So I don't know, it could have been 10 years ago that, they, yeah. <laughs> that I've, I've kind of wanted to visit and I just haven't. And I've, I've sort of left oh. them in that part. And I know one of these days I'm going to revisit it. You know, if you think about it, though, it's kind of interesting. They hit commercial success at the tail end of the 80s and into the early 90s when they got a good bit of commercial success with Empire it was kind of already into the grunge age and most of the hair metal quote unquote stuff had already drifted away so after Empire's success those two albums that Promised Land and Here in the Now Frontier that Chris DeGarmo's last two albums are pretty experimental for the time they went away from metal. They kind of, they're definitely not grunge, but it's, you know, of course, think about it. They're, they are, they were a D Seattle band well before grunge came along. But I think they, they were almost able to survive at least just for a minute, a little longer than some of the hair metal bands did, just because their commercial success came later. Yeah, you think about it that way. That was still before, because um, Empire came out in 1990, just before the whole thing. So they were one of the last successful bands from that era, because they weren't third generation watered down poison, which is what everybody else was. They had built that up to the career. I, I think the record company probably expected more from Mind Crime than they got. And then they did Empire, which again, I think didn't feel like a commercial sellout. It just felt like a band change in direction a little bit because they didn't want to go down that road of yeah. constantly doing that same thing. Again, they had some good songs on there. I, it was just not as appealing to me as this. And I was on board. And then by those next two, I just, I, I wasn't. And I remember I can't, I had one and I gave one of those, whichever one came out after that, a bunch of listens at the time and it just didn't do anything for me. One of these days I'll go back and, and revisit all they've done. For those of you out there listening, if you have not, if you're maybe a little too young to have caught this the first time or if you were listening to other stuff, I would suggest you listen to this one. It's a really strong record. It's a great story. It's musically really fantastic and I think you should listen to it. And while you're doing that, why don't you go ahead and, uh, you know, subscribe to the, to the podcast, tell some friends about the podcast, send me money. I don't have a Patreon or anything, but you know, you can just put money in an envelope and send it to me. I'll take it. I take euros or Zawadi's dollar, whatever you got, send it my way. Now, Joe, I really appreciate you coming back. So this is uh, your third time on the show. Looking forward to our fourth when we get around to season four, getting that on the schedule. So thanks so much for uh, taking the time out and goodbye. Thank you for listening. You can find all of our episodes at lovethisrecord.com. Intro and outro music by The Ashes of Grissom. And thanks as always to original patron, Mark Evers.